Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I woke up one morning and was coming off of a two-day bender and something traumatic happened and a friend of mine was in a really bad accident. It was on the news and we didn't know what was going to happen. And I was instantly brought back into that severe PTSD. And I had this thought of if so-and-so dies, I will die. I will never be able to recover. I barely got out of that last time. And now my life is so much more complicated due to drugs and alcohol that I'll just become a horrible drug addict, even though I already was. And that's when I looked over and saw my nephew, who was six months old at the time. And Sammy just had a very, and has a very old soul and a very wise face and he looked at me and was very calm as I was falling into chaos and absolutely hysterical and that's when I heard this voice from inside just very different than I'd heard before really say no you are not allowed to get worse you have to get better you have to show up for him Hello, friends, and welcome back to an extra special episode of The Light Watkins Show. I know I say that every time, but everyone is extra special to me because I get to interview ordinary folks just like you and me who have taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or what they've identified with as their mission. So I'm basically living the dream over here because I'm so obsessed with people who found their path. And in doing so... They have been able to positively impact and inspire the lives of many others who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. Today, I get to be in conversation with the author of a book called Soulbriety, one word, Soulbriety. Her name is Dr. Elisa Hallerman, and her story reminds me of something that I posted on social media the other day. I said that sometimes you have to move to New York to realize that you really wanted to be in California, and sometimes you have to go to medical school to realize you really wanted to be journalist. And Elisa's story is very similar to that because she grew up in New York City, became an attorney, and then she realized after a couple of years that she was in the wrong career, wrong apartment, wrong relationship, and she felt inspired to follow her sister who had just moved out to Los Angeles. And when she first got out to the West Coast, she started doing some cocktail waitressing. Then she was inspired to take a job at one of the big talent agencies. And then years later, 
Alisa is the head of talent at Endeavor, which is perhaps the biggest talent agency in Hollywood. And she's also trying to hide a full-blown addiction to drugs and alcohol. So basically her life was falling apart. She's missing important meetings. She's holed up in random hotel rooms for entire weekends, getting high and drunk. She's showing up to the Oscars high and on and on. Then she had an experience with her nephew that helped her start sobering up. She started going to recovery and she also started going to night school for psychology. Mind you, this is when Elisa was in her 40s. She got her doctorate in depth psychology while working at the talent agency during the day. And then after working as an agent for a dozen years, she resigned and she became a full-time psychologist. And that's where she found her true calling, which was to combine the recovery center process with the talent agency model. And Elisa called it Recovery Management Agency or RMA. And she has written an incredibly transparent book about her entire journey, all the highs and all the lows, and it's called Sobriety. We had an awesome conversation. We talked about the importance of sharing your story when you're trying to overcome any kind of addiction. It doesn't have to be alcohol. It could be chocolate. It could be anything. And why there's no one coming to save you and what you need to do instead. And why trauma is more common than most people think and how that could be playing a role in your addiction recovery or journey. We talked about what inspired her to completely switch careers three times and how she found the courage to keep taking those leaps of faith. And for those of you who are contemplating doing something similar, I think you are going to love this episode. And the same for those of you who are navigating some sort of addiction or you know someone who is, you are also going to get a lot out of this episode. Because for every awful story we hear about people who are addicted, it's so inspiring to hear a story about someone who was able to turn it all around and use their experiences to help other people who may be going through something similar. But I'll let you hear how it all went down in Elisa's words, not mine. So without further ado, let us dive into the life and work of Dr. Elisa Hallerman. Dr. Hallerman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Please call me Elisa. You were known as Elisa or Lisa for a very long time. And I'm wondering, have you gotten used to the Dr. Hallerman thing at this point? Or do you yeah. still think to yourself, who's this Dr. Hallerman person? Like, where? Where's Dr. Hallerman? You know, I'm comfortable with Elisa. I think that it makes other people more comfortable. I think that putting a title in front of your name, regardless, creates some distance. So there's some times when I need that and I need that boundary. But there's other times to just be Elisa, especially in what I do. People need to feel comfortable and they need to feel heard and listened to. And I don't always want to create that sort of hierarchy, if you will, in any way, shape or form. It's there and they know it. I don't have to keep having them say it. I like to start off these conversations talking about the earlier years. You grew up in Long Island? I did grow up on Long Island, in Great Neck, New York. Talk about your earlier years, like you're literally 
your earliest memories. And you talk about this in the book, but I, you know, I'm going to pretend like I didn't read the book so that the listener can have their experience. But you grew up with a sister and your parents were in the house. So what was the vibe like? What were the philosophies or ideologies like? How did your family view like success or their place in the world? Do you remember any of that stuff in relationship to little Alisa and what you were up to as a child? Yes. So as you were saying that, I don't think we had a philosophy, an ideology. I think we were going through the motions and my parents were young and figuring it out as we went along. I was very happy as a young kid. I moved to a different school district when I was in fourth grade. So sort of starting in fourth grade, I was making all of new new friends and all of that. And so that was a different experience. But I made friends easily and I was pretty outgoing and friendly. And when I was in seventh grade, I was diagnosed with scoliosis. And it was during that time where I found out I was going to have to wear a back brace, which they don't really do anymore, sort of from the neck down. Now they'll do surgery or something like that. But back in the ancient old days, that is what we did. And so I think I was still too young to recognize that it was going to be traumatic in any way. And it wasn't until other people started saying to me, oh, my God, this is terrible, or how are you functioning, or is this okay, that you start to put these own little post-it notes on your soul of, oh, wait, this is right, because as kids, we're not really made to think that way. That happens as a result of how the world sees us and what we decide to take on as our own personal narrative. But again, My friends were still my friends, and sure, there was some teasing going on, but nothing that really stands out. And it wasn't really until I was 17 that my family really started to shift. My mom was going through her own addiction, but we didn't know that. We didn't really know what was wrong with her. We knew she was disconnected. We knew she was struggling. I knew she wasn't present. And my dad also was very much living his own life. And I think the thing that I remember the most in the house was just really a disconnect. We had, I'll put it this way, we had four phone numbers within the house. So two kids and two parents, and everyone had their own line. And that wasn't very normal back then. It was maybe normal to have two lines because, right, we didn't have call waiting and we would make emergency breakthroughs, right? If someone was on the phone too long, we'd have to call the operator and say, can you make an emergency breakthrough? And then they would tap into the phone and go, Elisa would like to make an emergency breakthrough. Will you accept this call? And inevitably you were like, no. So I think that is like the metaphor, right, of these four numbers, four televisions, separateness. And despite the fact that my sister and I are extremely, were extremely close and are extremely close, there was four years of school in between us. So we were never in the same school at the same time. 
So we had different friends and, and that sort of thing. There wasn't a lot of family dinners towards the end. There wasn't a lot of discussion talking about feelings. So it's kind of been for yourself. I don't really remember anyone asking me if I did my homework or anything like that. And senior year in high school, my mom's mom, so my maternal grandmother, passed away. She was living in our house. It was extremely traumatic. We didn't discuss it to the extent that we really processed any of our feelings. And then I shortly left after that to go to college. And that was really where I started to explore and get more into certainly drinking as a means to anesthetize these big feelings I had that I didn't know what to do with. You grew up Jewish. I don't yes. know how Jewish your family was, but did you all ever talk about souls or oh, God, the spiritual, no. spiritual realm or anything? No, like no, 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 no. So we didn't belong to temple. I begged my parents to go to Hebrew school so that I could have a bat mitzvah. And we lived in a really Jewish neighborhood, but we didn't really practice the Jewish traditions in a way that was explaining on a deeper level the meaning and purpose behind them. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, TheHappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. I'm not sure if there is a relationship between being an addict as an adult and having addictive tendencies as a child. I don't know, maybe mm-hmm. you can you can speak to that later on in this conversation, but you mm-hmm. mentioned that you had an addiction to chocolate and soda and that you recognized kind of a unique relationship with alcohol when you experienced it in high school. So can you just talk a little bit about that moment where 
you went away to that summer program and and how did you know that this was going to play a feature role <laughs> in the next several years of your life? Yeah, I didn't know that it would. I knew for me that I had big feelings. I had a lot of things that I was sort of trying to work through on my own. And it became easier to reach for something outside of myself that was going to be more of a solution in a quicker way with a dopamine hit that was going to make me feel better. And of course, I didn't understand it to that extent or the neuroscience behind how my brain was working. But reaching for a piece of chocolate, reaching for that first drink. I didn't know what, when I was offered the alcohol the first time, I hated it. I thought it was disgusting. But instantly, it started to make me feel different and better and more comfortable and funnier and prettier and more social. And I was able to talk to this crush of mine, even though it was it was nothing great. I mean, I ended up puking on his on his shoes at the end of the night. But that connection that I felt of I was able to make this connection. I was able to talk to this boy, regardless of the fact that I was so sloppy drunk that when I woke up the next morning, I was like, yes, this is a good way to sort of be able to bridge that uncomfortableness that I feel. And so by the time I got to college and drinking was much more acceptable, I, in looking back, see that I drank more than others. I drank before we all started to drink. You know, I would drink in my room and then we would come downstairs and drink and then we would go out to the bar and we would drink more. But I was always a little bit of a step ahead and I always drank to get drunk. I never just drank. Like that didn't make sense to me. It was never about just getting to a place of just being a little bit tipsy. Once I had that first sip, I was all in until until I was throwing up or until I was blacking out or what have you. You and I are around the same age, actually. So a lot of your story. You look young. Yeah. (laughs) I've heard that before. No, we're around the same age. I'm a little bit younger than you are, but I grew up in the time where no one checked on your homework. You know, you rode bikes after school and you watched a lot of television and success. There, no one was talking about, you know, following your heart or living your purpose or anything like that. It was really about getting a job on Wall Street or, you know, becoming an engineer or an attorney or a doctor or something Mm -hmm. like that. So you eventually became an attorney, but what was your idea of success? Was it about making money? Was it about being super independent, being able to fund your lifestyle? What were you thinking at that young age of, you know, college, 19, 20, 21? So my mom wasn't working when I was in high school. My father worked in the garment center. And so I would see him having these, there were times when money wasn't even discussed. It was just there. We had things. We lived 
an upper middle class life. And then there were times where it was all of a sudden like, oh, we need to be a little bit tighter. We can't go on this vacation. We have to go to Florida instead or something like that. And so success felt like the equivalent of money. It didn't feel like an achievement. For me, that drive of going to law school happens when I was around my peers and in college, and most of my friends were going away to law school or going to medical school or doing graduate school. And I am competitive by nature. And so I thought, okay, well, I don't really know what I want to do. I certainly wasn't going through college thinking, oh, this will exactly take me here. I was a political science and a sociology major, and I thought that I really liked the law. And so I wasn't ready to go to work. I never had really had a real job. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to go to law school. For me, it was about where do I want to go and live? And at that time, when I was applying to law school, I really wanted to go to California. I had lived out here for one summer. I'd taken classes in a semester at UCLA and fell in love with Los Angeles. So I was really only applying to law schools out in California. So it was for me, it was more about a lifestyle than it was about law school. And what happened was all my friends, for the most part, were moving to New York City. And then the boy was also moving to New York City. And at the last minute, I thought, oh, making a mistake. I have to be where the action is in New York City. And I decided to go to school there. But There was never a grand plan. It was sort of by default. I didn't really know what else I wanted to do and had never really given it much thought other than, oh, this summer we're all going to study for the bar exam. Okay, cool. That's what we're doing. And I think if I hadn't gone to a school and had such really smart friends, for that matter, and who all became really successful themselves I don't know that I would have gone that path. That wasn't really, that didn't come from my parents as much as it came from my friend group in college. You mentioned in your book that you ultimately realized as a practicing attorney that you weren't in the right job, the right relationship, or the right city. And I'm sure somebody out there listening to this is feeling like that. So can you just describe what that feels like? to know that you're not in the right job, right relationship, right city? Because I'm assuming at this point, you're still not very literate in the language of your spirit and you're following your card and all of this kind of language. You said you couldn't see things that were beyond what you could visually, you know, physically experience. So talk about what that feels like. I didn't feel lit up. I didn't feel like myself. Everything felt a little bit more difficult than I think it should have. And there were a lot more days where I was unhappy and not comfortable. Not comfortable in my relationship felt like not comfortable in my home. We lived together. Not comfortable in my own bed 
because I had this other person and their energy that felt intrusive and not what I wanted. I would get up and go to work and more days than not wasn't comfortable in my own skin. And living in the city, I really always had this draw to Los Angeles for some reason. And I just remember really clearly this one morning I was going to work and it was freezing out and it had just snowed, but now it was that all that snow was melting and it was really slushy and dirty and it was freezing out and I was walking to the subway and so you're bundled really up and then you get to the subway and you're sweating and then you go back outside and it's freezing and I just felt like, God, why? Why am I doing this? There must be a warmer place to live. This is insane. And it was really like that simple. I don't think I would have made the move across the country had it not been for my sister, who really, I think, intuitively knew that I wasn't in the right job, I wasn't in the right relationship, and she's the one that brought me out to Los Angeles. She left me here after a year and went back to live her own big, beautiful life. But she was really the draw for me that brought me out here. What year was this? Which was 95, I think. I lived in New York for seven years. And I, that's exactly the reason why I moved to LA was because I had one too many, like those crazy winters with the slush and the dirty snow and cold and hot and cold and hot. and Yeah. And same thing with being a lawyer. You think it's going to be really glamorous. You've seen a lot of television shows and then you're schlepping around to the five boroughs and you're going to the Bronx and you're going to Brooklyn and you're walking into court and it's anything but glamorous. And I was just like, oh, this is not what I signed up for or thought it was going to be. And I think that's okay too. Like you were talking about for the listeners, you don't know what you don't know. And so I always say to my clients now, like, it's impossible to make a decision just thinking about it. You have to try things. You have to be curious about what is out there. And then you'll know, does this feel right inside? And when it doesn't, it's not about all of a sudden, oh my God, now I have to quit my job, break up with this person, move across the country. But it's just about slowly pulling those threads of curiosity and learning new things, which is what I obviously ended up doing when I left the entertainment business to go and start something new again. It was a little bit more particular than it was back in my 20s. Yeah, I mean, you talk about living curiously as one of the methodologies of sobriety, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but it sounds like that's what you were doing in that moment. What kind of law were you practicing anyways? Real estate and personal injury, working at a really small firm. So I was going to court. I was doing that every day, which was really fascinating and getting up and speaking in front of a judge and arguing my case and, you know, in my early 20s and just kind of 
figuring it out. I think it gave me a lot of confidence later on. And certainly having this legal experience and this degree even now in what I do has really folded into the company that I run and having this legal component to it. But it's hard to know in the moment how your life is going to unfold and really seeing each moment as a stepping stone to what's about to come. One more question about this stage in your life. As you were going in and out of court and schlepping around to the boroughs, what did you recognize? What makes a really good personal injury attorney that you had and what aspect of it did you feel like you didn't have and that you needed to have in order to really fully commit to this career? I had no interest. (laughs) The most important thing, I had no interest. I really didn't. I was uninspired. Bottom line, I was uninspired by the work. And there was nothing, right? It's kind of the difference between doing a job and there's something about, uh, there were many, many years where I worked just paycheck to paycheck just to make a living, just to be able to do the things that I needed to do. But when you recognize that maybe you can also do something like that and be inspired that's really when you start to light up. And I think that whether we find that in the job that we're doing or in our extracurricular activities, something that we're passionate about, but somewhere along the way, there has to be something that really is purposeful and meaningful. And you also mentioned that you weren't in the right relationship and you talked about how your your boyfriend at the time would like raise his voice and throw things. <laughs> Did you interpret that as being passionate when you were in your early 20s and then you recognize that maybe this is a little bit off? Yeah, I was quite dramatic in college, especially when drinking. And so our personalities really suited one another. We both had a lot of healing to do in the future. And we're still friends to this day. But yeah, it became something that I didn't want to participate in his own healing process that was going to need to happen. And I talk about in the book this moment where my our Rottweiler was scared in the moment when he was yelling and Tex, the Rottweiler, came behind me and he was 120 pounds, so bigger than me. And I just thought, right, it's when you can't see it for yourself. And then I was like, oh, Texas scared. And maybe this isn't the norm. And there was never any question that there wasn't love and that we weren't meant to be in each other's lives for a long time to come in that sort of family or familiar way, but we both had a lot of growing up to do and a lot of growing down. So you moved to LA. What was your mental state like when you got to LA? I got to LA and well, first I went to Arizona to get my sister because she was leaving from college 
and we filled up a U-Haul and then we drove it to Los Angeles. My one memory of really coming off the 405 onto like Wilshire Boulevard in Westwood was, oh my God, like what am I doing? But I was up for adventure and so was she. We lived together. I had no idea what I wanted to do, but we needed money. I needed money. She needed money. She got a job and I got a job as a cocktail waitress because I needed a minute (laughs) and that seemed like a good job for an alcoholic at the time. So I had my days and I would work at night And I did that for two months until one day I was what they call marrying the ketchup bottles. Like you shouldn't put half empty ketchup bottles on a table. And so you take the other half empty and you marry them together. And so I was marrying the ketchup in the back and had this moment of what am I doing? Is this it? Right. These little whispers from soul saying, what now? Is this it? So that was the moment where I started to expand into what else is out there and started meeting people and asking questions and was led into getting a job at a talent agency. A friend of a friend knew a talent agent, and I didn't know anything about the entertainment business. This is pre-internet, pre-cell phones, again, back in the historic ages. And I... Immediately upon walking into an agency, it was was ICM at the time, it was very young, very loud, very energetic, very exciting, glitzy and fun and still very mysterious because we didn't have social media and we didn't have access to celebrity in the way that we do now. So there was still a big mystique about how to make movies or how to meet these people. And that really interested me. And then when I started working as an assistant, was really clear on, oh, I can use my ability in negotiating and my comfort of understanding how to negotiate and feeling confident and sure of myself that I will be able to use my law degree in in a different way. And so that sort of set me on that trajectory of that's what I want to do now. Did you recognize a different internal feeling when you started getting into this new entertainment industry versus the one you had when you were in New York that made you think to yourself, okay, this is it. This is what I'm meant to be doing. Yes, definitely. And I think that's the thing about being curious is you don't know what you don't know. And I had no concept of what the entertainment business was like. I certainly didn't know what an agent was like or that career. And so it wasn't until I was sitting at that desk and being an assistant and listening to those calls and reading scripts. And that was something that was really exciting to me. And I wasn't only going to be able to use my intellectual capabilities, but my creative capabilities, which I think were really stymied back when I was a lawyer. And I really loved storytelling and 
I loved being creative. And that was something that went missing a long time before. So somehow bringing that back into my life, yes, I right away knew this is what I wanted to do and that I wanted to work my way up and become an agent. We have Lisa now the agent in Hollywood. Yes. And then there's Trixie. Can you describe who Trixie was for the listener? There was Lisa Hallerman because I had dropped the E because people were constantly saying my name wrong and it felt exhausting. And so I just went with Lisa. And I was also had this other personality, if you will, or this mask rather that I would wear of Trixie. She didn't have a name yet, but she was the one that would go out at night and she had a big personality and she was very talkative and pretty loud and she would wear crazy outfits and really no shame. And yeah, so that was sort of Trixie up for anything. And eventually when I got sober in 2002, I really needed a distinction between that mask of Trixie and this new person that I now had to be. I was putting down this mask of this addiction and this lifestyle. It's not just about being abstinent, but the things that you were going and doing and thinking that you were enjoying, and now you're not anesthetized during them, you're not drinking, that party might not seem so fun, that relationship might not seem so good, or that friend might not really be the right friend that's giving back in a way that feels meaningful, but really kind of going on the self-discovery of, okay, who are you now? And so... That is when I sort of named that part of myself Trixie. And it wasn't until much later on that I was really able to personify her and understand who she was and was an autonomous part of me until I started studying depth psychology much, much later. You described a moment in the book where you realized that you had a problem, even though you've also wrote about dozens and dozens of instances where things were happening. And just to kind of break the fourth wall a little bit, how did you remember all of that, even though you were not really sober for much of that time? Did you keep a journal or anything like that? No. And I'm sure there would have been a lot more stories. There's always those highlights that you remember. But it is, you know, when you start writing and you asked about this before, I'd never written a book. And so I just started writing stories. And as you're writing stories and as you're really thinking about these times in your life and you really start to remember a little bit more. But what's interesting is how I remember those moments. I'm sure anyone in them has a different perspective of what was happening. And That concept for my family in sort of reading the book was very true, that the book is my perspective from what I remember and my memories and all of it. But, you know, there's a story that I tell about being really high at the Oscars and walking in and seeing 
drug-sniffing dogs. And while I was writing it, I was like, is this, is this, did that happen? Were there dogs there or was that my imagination? And I really went back and started Googling and looking into it because I'd never seen the dogs there before. And what I realized was that that, that did happen because essentially it was right after 9-11. And so the security was really, really tight. So there were these drugs, not drug-sniffing dogs, but bomb-sniffing dogs probably outside. And that wasn't part of my imagination, but I'm sure lots of things were during that time. But storytelling about your life is your perspective of what happened. And it's not everybody's truth. What was it about being high at the Oscars that made you realize this is a problem? There was a point in my using where I started missing things that were really important to me. So Going to the Oscars was something I was really excited about, being able to celebrate that, have that experience for the first time. And I was really excited about it. And I missed it, essentially. And I put myself through a really horrible day instead. And that wasn't my quote-unquote plan. So there were a lot of times that I would miss an event or... I was supposed to go on a date or I was supposed to meet up with someone or I was supposed to show up somewhere and I was really excited about it or looking forward to something and then missed it, missed it entirely because of my drug use. And that is a real indication of I don't want to necessarily be doing this, but also recognizing that I had no control, that once I even took a sip of alcohol, all bets were off as to what was going to happen next. And you make all these deals with yourself. I'll have one drink. I won't drink till two. I won't do drugs. I'll just have a cocktail. I'll only have wine. I'll only have beer. I'll only do it on Friday. I'll only do it on Saturday. And that's not how addiction works. That's not what's happening in our brains. And It wasn't until years later when I realized, like, I could have had the best of intentions to not do these things. But once I ingested a substance or alcohol, all bets were off. And I was in this survival part of my brain thinking, oh, I need this like I need air and food and water. And I will stop at nothing until I get that to the extent that everything else gets pushed aside. And when that starts to happen, you start to recognize, okay, maybe this isn't what I want to do. But again, didn't know I was an addict, didn't know I was an alcoholic, just thought something was deeply wrong with me and did not know how I was going to change or be any different. And like your experience with Tex, the Rottweiler, you kind of had another similar experience with your nephew Mm -hmm. that finally was like the straw that broke the camel's back on the addiction. Yes. So I had suffered 
the loss of a friend, it was quite traumatic. And that was in 1996, pretty soon after I moved to Los Angeles. And I'd suffered from PTSD for a while after that and didn't get the help that I needed. And so those symptoms, those panic attacks, that severe OCD, that anxiety never really went away. I just sort of lived over it. And what happened was now cut to many years later, I woke up one morning and was coming off of a two-day bender and something traumatic happened and a friend of mine was in a really bad accident and it was on the news and we didn't know what was going to happen. And I was instantly brought back into that severe PTSD. And I had this thought of if so-and-so dies, I will die. I will never be able to recover. I barely got out of that last time. And now my life is so much more complicated due to drugs and alcohol that I'll just become a horrible drug addict. And that's when I looked over And saw my nephew, who was six months old at the time, and Sammy just had a very, and has, a very old soul and a very wise face. And he looked at me and was very calm as I was falling into chaos and absolutely hysterical. And that's when I heard this voice from inside just very different than I'd heard before, really say, no, you are not allowed to get worse. You have to get better. You have to show up for him. And quickly after that, picked up the phone and called my therapist and said, what should I do? I need something. Should I go to one of those 12-step meetings or something like that? And the second thing that happened was, Over the next few days, while I was not drinking, I was in this hospital setting, and I'd gone to see my friend, and a lot of it was around, right, this near-death experience, and I was really faced with mortality of, what am I doing? What am I doing to my body and to my life? And it became a lot more real and I knew I needed to do something. So in LA, if you lived there for a little while, you know, some eventually the language of manifestation and the law of attraction and soul purpose and these kinds of things will sneak its way into these various conversations. Was that happening with you at that time? Or is it still kind of a whole separate other world for you? Yes, I didn't have that language or that awareness that yet it wasn't until I got to AA that I even started to hear spiritual practice, higher power, words like that. And I didn't quite know what any of that meant or how to do it or how to practice it. But what did resonate for me right away is I read the big book, as we call it. And because I am a nerd at the end of the day, schoolwork-wise, 
And so I went home and I read this. And a lot of the book is in story form as well. And all of that really resonated with me. And I thought, okay, this is a way. This makes sense. And I was quite relieved, actually, to know that I had this because it meant that there might be a solution. Then I just sort of went all in to work. And it really wasn't until I woke up five years sober and at the height of my career and still felt, not still, and started to feel again that lack of meaning and purpose. And essentially, I was suffering from a crisis of meaning, regardless of the fact that I was sober. And that's when I had to go a little bit deeper. And that's when I started reading books and meeting people and underlining and learning about more and more and more. When you talked about waking up and having your fifth anniversary of being sober and your friends were calling you and reaching out, how important is that if you have a friend who is going through this journey of sobriety to acknowledge their anniversaries and to celebrate the work that it takes to stay sober? That's a great question. And a client asked me this yesterday about reaching out to a friend and not being quite sure if they were still sober or not, but wanting to celebrate if they were, and how do you measure that? And there is this, in 12-step, there is this concept of getting 365 days in a row that we celebrate that birthday or that anniversary, depending upon where you live. And there is something very rewarding about that achievement. But I also think that just having an hour, just having a day of abstinence or sobriety is equally, if not harder, to do. And that the slips or the relapses are really just indications that there's still a piece of healing that we need to shine a light on and that it's not about losing anything, but it's about gaining the insight from those experiences. And if we can do that and keep going and keep learning, then that is also a celebration. So I do celebrate my birthday, but I also celebrate with lots of other people one day or one hour. And I think the only reason that I didn't relapse early on was because one, I didn't get to AA until I was 33. And had I gone sooner, I probably would have had that experience. And also, I knew somewhere that I wouldn't get a second chance, that I wouldn't come back that I wouldn't live through that. And so the fight for just wanting to be alive became really the goal for me. You're the head of talent. You're representing all these amazing comedians and actors. And you got a personal relationship with Ari Emanuel and all of this. And yet you described yourself as wearing a mask. So again, you're in this position where on the surface, it looks like, okay, 
Lisa is living the dream. She's successful. She's got the great house, the great car, the dogs, the clothes, the trips, everything. And you're sober. Mm-hmm. And yet you feel like you're wearing a mask. How do you interpret that now as a sober version of yourself? <laughs> and what do you do next? Yeah, so I think that putting on a mask is a healthy way to present ourselves to the world, right? You're going to show up at work one way. You're going to show up in relationship another way. You're going to show up at a family dinner or business meeting in a different way. And that's okay. That's normal boundary behavior. But it's when you begin to believe that you are that mask, that you're living in a place of ego, and you've forgotten and gotten further further away from what I would now call my soul self. And what happened with the success was a lot of ego, because while I was abstinent and working on my recovery, what I wasn't doing was working on what lied underneath that. For me and most, addiction is a symptom of something else that's going on. And if we never look at what lies beneath the addiction, which more often than not is trauma, then we're not healing the wounds and we're still going to try to escape them. And so for me, it became about workaholism or any other sort of ism that I could do anything not to look at what lied underneath. I also really didn't know how to do that work. You would hear about that sometimes of you got to go do the inner work. And I was like, I don't even understand. Like, how do you get inside? Where is the doorway to unlock this inner work we speak of? And I didn't feel like that made sense to me. I didn't know where to do it. And so waking up at five years sober when you have these milestones and you're forced to, you know, with any milestone, sort of look back and reflect, essentially, I was really proud of everything that I had achieved and accomplished and really grateful for everything that I'd worked so hard for and and built myself. But I was still suffering from this crisis of meaning. And so it wasn't like I wasn't, quote unquote, happy. I wasn't living in joy all the time. I wasn't connected to my soul self. I was essentially focused on other people's lives much more so than I was on my own. And that's what I started to recognize. And that's what I knew had to change. I didn't know that it meant leaving the entertainment business or not being an agent, that took time of a lot of me sort of sidestepping. I'll go to another agency. I'll move to New York. I'll have different clients. I'll do different. And then all the while being curious about what else existed out there and going to school and taking classes at night and learning about other things that were interesting to me. And eventually that leads you to being able to hear 
essentially what your most authentic soul self really is craving. So when you chose to go to school at night, was that something that was a result of a conversation you had with someone else who had done something similar? Or why did you choose to do it that way versus just quitting the agency lifestyle altogether and just focusing on school full time? Because I feel like other people are going through this, you know, they may be thinking about these same things and doing this transition. And what are your thoughts on that? Now that you've done it that way, do you wish you had done it the other way or do you like the no. way you did it? Yes, I like the way I did it. I had taken these, I think it was like Christmas vacation or something was coming up and I was going to have these two weeks off. And so I really wanted to take time during that period to read a bunch of books and look at stuff that I hadn't thought about before. And somewhere in one of the books I'd read this exercise of like, make a list of all the things that you ever wanted to do or the things you wanted to be when you were little or the things that were interesting to you. And so I created this really long list. And the top three things were, I wanted to learn more about addiction. I wanted to be of service to other women. And I wanted to be an ER doctor. And I thought, all right, let's not rule anything out, just an exercise. And when I got home, I was like, let's just take tiny little actions towards each one of these things. No one's saying, walk in and quit your day job. I mean, most of us can't afford to do that. So this was my sort of self-exploration on my own time. And I started with, okay, well, what prerequisites do I have to take to take the MCATs? And so I started looking at that, and that brought me to the UCLA website. And then I remembered I was terrible at math, which was why I went to law school, and thought, all right, but what I found on the website while I was searching was this drug and alcohol counseling class. And I thought, oh, well, I did want to learn about addiction, and I'm not ready to take the MCATs just yet, but... This seems interesting. And that's when I decided to go back to school at night. The classes were Tuesday and Thursday from 7 to 10. And I would go after work. And in wor and at work, I would study for my quizzes and look at my little note cards. And that started to really light me up again. That became really fun and interesting in a way that doing the other job wasn't, but still not ready to leave, of course, and then got a job working at a female sober living nonprofit and working with other women that were struggling. And again, that started to light me up in a way. And so then I thought, okay, well, maybe I could open a sober living and do this simultaneously. And so... That's what I did first. I opened a sober living for males, 18 to 30, and I still hadn't quit my job. And I was sort of doing both, and both were suffering because I wasn't in or out. And I remember saying to my friend, Marion Williamson, this is where my spiritual journey had taken me, how am I going to know, I said to her, when it's time to quit my job. And she said in typical Marianne, you'll know when you know. 
And I was like, what does that mean? Can you be more specific? Like, how will I know? And she said, that's your ego wanting to know. There's nothing to know yet. It didn't happen. You'll have a feeling. You'll just know. And when you know here in your heart, in your soul, that's when. And she said, and just wait till then and put 150% in until that happens. And then one day I walked into WME where I was working at the time and I just felt like I don't, I don't work here anymore. And I walked into Ari's office and I said, yeah, I think I'm going to retire. <laughs> and that's what happened. feel was missing because it seems I lived in LA for a long time. It seems like everyone and their mother is either in AA or in Al-Anon or, you know, there's tons of support if you want to become sober. And I guess this was going to get into the origin story behind recovery management agency, but what was the hole that you recognized when you had that conversation or after that conversation with Ari that I'm going to make this contribution to this journey that other people may be on? So I actually, I remember going to my first a meeting and thinking most of the people I knew were living the lifestyle that I was living at the time. And then I remember walking in and being like, oh, that's where you've been. And it felt like, oh, yeah, half half the other population is in here. And that was really fascinating to me that it wasn't this secret society down in these basements that it was really lots of people I knew and just right there trying to figure it out. These are where the real deals are taking place. <laughs> need to be in here. Yeah, it's like, what is happening? This is where you guys have been. So that was really interesting to me. But what happened was when I started taking these classes at UCLA, I started really learning about addiction and how our brain works and neuroscience. And I started to hear this little word trauma. And I started to recognize that, oh, my God, I think this is what I had been suffering from. And I started to learn about these different modalities and about science and lots of different things. And I was an agent at heart. So I would read a book or read an article and then I would call the author or call the doctor and be like, do you want to go to lunch? Tell me more. And essentially was building and building this group of doctors and professionals in this world that I was just fascinated by. And I thought, if I don't know this, how are people supposed to know what they don't know? I didn't know this when I was getting sober. I didn't know this when my family members were getting sober or suffering from mental health issues, my clients. And you're constantly asking your neighbor or your friend's friend, who's your, who do you, can you recommend a therapist? Can you recommend this? And there wasn't a place where we could go. And as a former attorney, when people would come, they, it was very clear. You have a legal issue, you go and you find an attorney. You do your taxes, you find an accountant. You want to build your career, you go find an agent. But all of a sudden, you're having a mental health crisis and 
you're asking your dentist? Like, what? It didn't seem logical. (laughs) So I thought, okay, I think that kind of needs to happen. And also, I had this sober living. I had nine clients there living there. And they immediately became my clients in the way that I knew how to problem solve and essentially agent their health and wellness. So I was able to look at something and say, this isn't working or, oh, just because they say this is what you should be doing next, like this doesn't feel right. I think, well, we're not looking at this piece or missing that piece. And that was sort of my secret sauce and my ability to manage people and complex problems and not be afraid to do something that hadn't been done before. So after two years, realized I can't have this house. It is crushing me and worrying about nine boys every night if they were home, if they took the test, if they were driving, if their girlfriend broke up with them was just more than I could handle. And so I closed the house and decided to continue going back to school and creating this essentially management agency off the blueprint of the talent model that I knew how to do. When you say dealing with people, complex problems, things that haven't been done before, it sounds like you could be working at a talent agency in Hollywood. I'm saying. So, so it sounds like those dozen years there were preparing you for this next phase of sobriety. So let's talk about sobriety. First of all, that is an amazing name. So I want to know the backstory of the name. Where were you? Were you in the shower? Were you <laughs> on the toilet? Where, where were you when you came up with this name, sobriety? I don't, someone asked me that. I don't remember exactly. I do know that it was while well, I was at Pacifica grad school and I started learning about essentially about soul and depth psychology, which was what I was studying, is rooted in the unconscious and it's making what is unknown known. And so there's a lot of talk about soul and psyche. I do remember saying to my boyfriend at the time, you know, it's maybe like sobriety. And him saying, nah, that sounds like soul cycle. That's a dumb idea. (laughs) You broke up with him, obviously. (laughs) Obviously. Obviously. But it was something I always thought about. What happened was when I was working on my dissertation, And doing my research for that, my research question was essentially, can doing soul-centered work lead to long-term recovery from addiction? And in interviewing my participants who all had various lengths of abstinence or sobriety or recovery was that they all were doing soul-centered work, that they were essentially doing it, but they didn't know that they were doing it. And they didn't know how to do it when it wasn't happening organically. And that I realized that, you know, there was no language for it. And so that's really what sobriety became about was creating not just a modality of recovery, but reintroducing. It's not like I created 
words like soul or soul work or any of these things, but spirit and soul along the way became a little bit more interchangeable. And in my studies, there was a real differentiation between spirituality and soul work. And when I started practicing soul work, even though I had already been practicing spirituality in my life, that to me was a big difference in the gateway of how to get in to the inner work, how to get inside that thing that was missing for me. And learning about the unconscious and learning about the imaginal and learning about soul and recognizing that the dark nights, not the bad days, not the bad moods, not those things, but really dark nights of immense suffering, a lot of pain, soul loss, if you will, where you feel fragmented. Parts of yourself feel like they're missing. You don't recognize yourself as who you know yourself to be. Those feelings, that was language I wanted to reintroduce or introduce to the recovery world that I had not yet heard. Not to push away anything else because I've done lots of different modalities, whether that's trauma work or talk therapy or spiritual work or anything else. But soul, essentially the essence of who we are, our unique way of showing up in the world, our meaning-making machine, that it was essential to be doing that work. And it's something that you can do for yourself and on your own. It felt like the missing thread between all of these other things that I had been doing in the past. So that's where the concept of sobriety came in. And then the modality in which I was working with my clients and really now a lifestyle for me. So I've been writing about and teaching about meditation for a long, long time, like 15 Mm -hmm. plus years. And the first thing you learn when you do that is that people have to be ready to to hear about that Mm -hmm. (laughs) in order for whatever you're saying to be received properly. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that soul briety was for everyone. So I'm curious, as you were going through the writing process of your book, who was the avatar that you had in mind when you were writing? Who were you writing to specifically? Yeah, I love that you asked that question because that is something that my personal editor and the publisher kept saying, you need to know who your audience is. And I felt differently. I felt that my story or anybody's stories, like mythology and movies, that you can relate to some sort of archetypal character and connect to storytelling. And so it was less about, for me, it was less about who's the audience and more about Am I telling enough stories where there's enough archetypal cores to these different complexes that people are going to be able to relate to? Uh, Yeah, me too. And that 
is kind of ageless and genderless. And that's kind of where I worked from was which stories of my life felt that they weren't personal anymore, but that they needed to be told in service to other people connecting to them. And I've heard back, you know, the month that the book's been out from 16-year-olds to 80-year-olds to across different nationalities and religions and genders and people, all different sorts of things of which part resonated for them. And I think that that was what I wanted to do. I felt like we all have soul. We all have this part of ourselves that's been predestined to have the answers. It's not outside of ourselves. And how we tap into that and how we listen to those whispers and how we go on our own personal soul journeys is relatable to anyone. I guess what I'm wondering is how does someone, let's say someone listening to this conversation, how do they know they're ready for the soul variety process of telling your story, living curiously, entering, you're doing all this intentionally, right? Entering the imaginal and, and all of that. For me, it was, you know, I talk about at the end of the book, sort of what does it look like to go on a soul journey? And most of us start in phase one where we're just walking through our ordinary life. And a lot of us are very content in the day to day. I'm going to go to work I'm going to come home, eat dinner, watch Netflix, go to bed, this, that, take a trip, meet a person, whatever it is, go to dinner, right? And we're just like living there. And for a lot of people, including myself, that's where we want to stay. It's comfortable. We're not into change. And we will hear these whispers asking these big questions. And inevitably, we will shush them away. We will turn away from them. I think the person that's ready is the person that's saying, okay, I've pushed it away, but it's getting louder and louder, or it's gotten so loud that a brick house has now fallen on my head and I'm forced to stay still and look at this. And then that is when essentially that guide will appear for you where we're afraid to change, but all of a sudden we see it in someone else. Oh, that book, that that's resonating with me. Well, she did this or she did that. Or you meet somebody and you see something that might be possible and you think, mm, maybe I can too. And then you essentially take that leap of faith. And that leap of faith doesn't have to be giant. It doesn't have to be quit your job, break up with your relationship, move across the country. They can be these tiny little take a class read another book, go on a meeting with someone you think is interesting and ask them to tell you their life story, whatever it is. And then know as you start to take those leap of faiths and eventually you're going to get to this place where you're going to hit some speed bumps and you're going to hit some brick walls. And I, you know, I talk about that as sort of phase six, which I call lions and tigers and bears oh no, (laughs) where 
you thought it was going to be a little easier, right? And you thought you were going to take this leap and you got this guide and you're ready to go and it sounds awesome. And then you're faced with adversity. And you walk through that and you get through it and you fight your way and you slay those dragons and you finally get to the threshold. And maybe you're there now. That's what I talk about, like knowing where you are on this soul journey will dictate how ready you are to be willing to look at it. But we're at that threshold and we think we've made it and we're about to open the door and we're crossing over to the other side and it's just going to be rainbows and butterflies and we realize we don't have the key and there's more work to do. And that moment of truth, that final piece of something that we need to go through, something else that we need to learn, that is where we're going to be able to really sort of sit and fully alchemize all of that pain into purpose. And then after we have sort of had our own enlightenment and we have learned something and we have transformed, even though when we were living in the ordinary life, we thought this seems easier But now we've come full circle, and then it's our job, essentially, as humans, to be able to share that wisdom with others. And that's what the book was. The book was me sharing that wisdom with others. And now I'm hearing those new whispers, and I got to tell you, not ready to listen to them all. (laughs) I'm like, I'm exhausted. I just did this soul journey. So how did you know it was time to write this book? Because this, again, this is a very involved process. It sounds like you got a lot going on running the recovery management agency. So was this serendipity? Did you meet an agent? Did someone suggest it? How did you know? When I was working on the dissertation, I felt like there was a lot of important material there. And I felt like it should be a book or it could be a book. But you're right. I didn't have the time. And I wanted some help. And I asked somebody else to look at the dissertation and write an outline of what they thought the book might be. And I was like, no, this isn't right. Clearly, only I could do this actual work. But wasn't ready. And then the pandemic hit. And the amount of suffering and the amount of people suffering from depression and suicidal ideation and addiction went up so tremendously. And the pain was so in my face every day. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to help as many people as might need it just through my own company that I started to feel really called to sit down and write the book. And I believe that unless I felt called, it is such a difficult process and you do have to make so much time for it. And there is so much that goes into it that just wanting to write a book is not enough. You really have to need to write the book. It was very well done. Thank you. How, how did you write so well first time out of the out of the gate? Did you have a good <laughs> editor? Or did it take you a lot of drafts? Because it looks very, very polished for a first time author's work. 
Yes, I had hired this woman, Kelly Notoris. I went and heard her speak about book writing. And I knew, I was like, I need this woman in my life as a coach to help me organize my thoughts. And so I went up to her after the speaking engagement and said, listen, I want to write this book and I'm going to need your help. And she said, great, I have an agency and we will find the right person for you and the right coach and so on and so forth. And I was like, no, no, it's got to be you. She was like, yeah, that's not what I do right now. I'm doing X, Y, and Z and running the company. And I was like, no, no, (laughs) you are the person. And so eventually I wore her down and she agreed to do it. And so she coached me and we worked together in this really unique way. And she pulled stories from me and got me to go deeper than felt comfortable. And she became one of my closest friends, my scary English teacher. And I don't think the book in this form would exist without her. So I think it is about finding the right person that's going to walk by your side and cheer you on and help you. Yeah. And again, my intention for asking these questions is because other people may be listening, thinking, well, yeah. you know, I've got this book in me and and they need to know that you don't have to do it on your own. You can find help in all, all ways. There are people yep. who will actually write the book for you, people who will coach you, people who will edit, use it in a substantial way. So it's, it's, yeah. it's all possible. Yeah. I mean, Kelly and I are actually teaching a class this Saturday of how to write a soul-centered memoir because we learned so much from one another in our process that we really both felt called to do it. So we'll see how that goes and maybe we'll continue teaching that class. Beautiful. Beautiful. Final question. How do you think about success these days after all of your experiences being at the pinnacle of Hollywood and all of that? For me, success is achievements and achievements that are meaningful for me and leaving something or leaving a career or leaving a specific genre, if you will, of something that you're doing is not a failure, but celebrating your achievements and moving on to achieve new things. That shift in my thinking has allowed me to go on and do many other things that don't keep me in a box. And I think I'll be able to continue to do that. So it's really about setting out to achieve something and for the right reasons. Beautiful. And we didn't talk a ton about recovery management agency, but you do add some vignettes in the book on some of your experiences with your clients. And it's kind of like a concierge recovery service, which I love because again, it takes everything that you've experienced in your life and it creates this unique offering that only you could have done in the world. And for people who are out there who may look at that and go, well, you know, she should be helping homeless people. You help homeless people. That's something that lights you up inside. You go out and start taking those steps. And that's what we all have to do is use what we have to contribute in the way that lights us up inside. So thank you very much for stepping into that fully and for continuing to stay curious and continuing to share your story and for inspiring us to share our stories. And I want everybody to get a copy of your book, Soul Briety, the best title ever. And I hope that you and I get a chance to cross paths in person at some point soon. 
Yeah, definitely. Let me know when you're in LA. I will for sure. Thank you so much. All right. Talk soon. Thank you again for having me. This was awesome. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Dr. Elisa Hallerman. Her book, Solbriety, which is spelled S-O-U-L-B-R-I-E-T-Y. It's available everywhere books are sold. And also make sure to find her on the socials. She is at Dr. Elisa Hallerman. So that's spelled D-R-E-L-I-S-A-H-A-L-L-E-R-M-A-N. And of course, I'll drop links to everything that Dr. Elisa and I talked about on the show notes on my website, which is at lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to the Light Watkins show, first of all, thank you very much. We do have an incredible archive of past interviews with other luminaries who share how they found their path and their purpose. Luminaries such as Young Pueblo, the internet poet sensation, film director Ava DuVernay, motivational speaker Ed Milet, and many, many more. You can also search these interviews by subject matter in case you only want to hear episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or people who've overcome financial hardship or people who've navigated health challenges. You can get a list of all of those episodes at lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also watch these interviews on YouTube. If you want to put a face to a story, just go to YouTube, search Light Watkins Podcast, and you'll see the entire playlist. And if you don't already know, I post the raw, unedited version of every podcast episode inside of my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you're the type who likes hearing all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning and end of every episode, you can listen to all of that by joining my online community at thehappinessinsiders.com. Not only are you going to have access to the unedited versions of the podcasts, but you also will have access to my 108 day meditation challenge, along with other challenges and masterclasses for becoming the best version of you. And then finally, to help me bring you more amazing guests. It would go a long way if you can just take 10 seconds to rate this podcast. All you have to do is glance down at your screen, click on the name of the podcast, scroll down past those six or seven episodes. You'll see a space with five blank stars. Just tap the star all the way on the right and you've left a rating. And if you feel inspired to go the extra mile, please leave a review by just listing one episode that you think a new listener should consider starting with. That could be your favorite episode and that will be their introduction to the podcast. Thank you so much for that. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you who took a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart. And by all means, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.